Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 19 of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and I am here to take you on a walking tour of this week's literary streets. As you know, if you've been listening to the show, we start off most weeks with an iTunes review. If you're enjoying the show, and I hope you are, the easiest way to help us out is to leave that review in iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. And if you've been thinking this whole time, I'd love to leave a review, but I don't know how to do it. Well, check out the Facebook page at SYY Podcast. I put up a post last week with a YouTube video that shows you how to do just that from your desktop or mobile device. Now, speaking of iTunes reviews, let's hear one right now. Impeccable Production by Malacast Agent Having heard the telltale heart read aloud by so many, I found your reading to capture more the humorous aspects and irony Poe was embedding within the piece. With amazing clarity, a voice fit for narrative, and a poignant discrimination of only the best classic literature and modern marvels to come, Your and Yours is true to the titles. Tales of yore that are timeless mixed with the current trends and micro-authors, bloggers, and short story easings of the now. Recommended first and foremost for the most astute listeners of the beloved classics, and classics yet to be. Well, many thanks to Malacast Agent for the great review, and keep those reviews coming. As I mentioned before, it's the easiest way to help out the show, and another easy way is to follow us on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at SYYPodcast. And you can contact me through any of those methods, or through SYYPodcast at gmail.com, with requests, or with your own original short story that you'd like to have read on the show. Big shout out this week to Alfred and Olivia, who I talked to this week on Facebook, and I want to especially thank Olivia. Pretty much every time I post something on Facebook, I can count on seeing a like from Olivia, which is great. Now, the likes and shares on Facebook, retweets on Twitter, that all helps new people discover the show. That's a little bit longer than I usually go on about promoting the show, but it is important And I know before I started podcasting my own self, I didn't give a lot of thought to shouting out shows I listen to, but it really does help. Now, speaking of shouting out quality podcasts, there's a brand new show that just dropped a couple of days ago that you ought to check out. It's called The Mythical Podcast, and that's this week's Podcast Partner. Hello, I'm the narrator, the creator of Mythical a podcast that wanders into the dark and fantastical pages of fairy tales and myths. Each episode, I read a classic or obscure story and add my own thoughts on the narrative. If you love original fairy tales, visit the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Mythical Podcast for all the latest updates and links to listen for free. I hope to see you in the storybooks. So now that you know how to spread the word about this show and you've been introduced to the narrator, let's get into this week's episode. If you heard the tease last week, you might be expecting some fairy tales and folklore. Well, that episode is still on the way, but it won't be just this week. That episode is by request, and I am determined to always fill requests when I can, but some just take a little bit longer than others. That one will be a treat when it is released, and this week, though, is also by request from Tim in Delaware, and it'll feature stories from one William Sidney Porter, better known as O. Henry. William Porter was born in 1862 in Greensboro, North Carolina. 
Porter's mother died of tuberculosis when he was three years old, so he and his father moved in with his paternal grandmother. At the age of 15, Porter started working in his uncle's pharmacy, and he was a licensed pharmacist at the age of 19. Porter turned out to be a man of many talents and would amuse customers when they came into the store by actually drawing them. Now, while working at the pharmacy, Porter developed a persistent cough around that time and ended up moving to Texas, hoping that the change of air would help get rid of it. That cough did improve, and he stayed in Texas, working in several different odd jobs, such as being a shepherd, a cook, a journalist, a draftsman, and a banker, among others. Now, banking in particular would prove to be somewhat eh, problematic for Mr. Porter. As a banker, he was said to be rather careless in his booking and may have, whoops-a-daisy, embezzled some funds. He was fired from the bank in 1894, after which he started his own weekly humor publication, which failed shortly thereafter, and he was indicted for embezzlement in 1896, after auditors at the bank found his embezzlement and filed charges. He posted bail and skipped town, heading to Honduras, with whom the U.S. had no extradition treaty. Now, the plan was that Porter would leave Texas, go to New Orleans, and then go to Honduras, which he did. His wife and daughter came with him to New Orleans and were going to follow him to Honduras later on. However, his wife unfortunately took ill and contracted tuberculosis and became too ill to travel, so they went to live with her parents back in Texas. Porter was only in Honduras for six months, but during that time he holed up in a hotel and wrote his first collection of short stories called Cabbages and Kings. These were all connected stories that combine into one larger narrative. It was in this collection in a story called The Admiral that Porter coined the phrase Banana Republic, which in the story referred to a small tropical country with an economy that relied on, well, bananas. Porter returned to Texas to be with a sick wife, and the authorities were pretty lenient in allowing him to remain with her until she died in 1897. After her death, Porter was sentenced to five years in prison for embezzlement, of which he served three, getting out early for good behavior. Now, when he was in prison, he continued to write, and he submitted his work through a friend to different publications under different pseudonyms. He did this so that the publications wouldn't know that the author was in prison. The pseudonym that became most well-known during this time, of course, was O. Henry, and he used this name for the first time in a story called Whistling Dick's Christmas Stocking, which was published in McClure's magazine in 1899. O. Henry was released from prison in 1902 and began at that point to write prolifically. Cabbages and Kings was published in 1904, followed by The Four Million in 1906, which contained his most famous short story, The Gift of the Magi, which we will certainly revisit around Christmas time. As for Whistling Dick's Christmas Stocking, well, I haven't read that one yet, but I can't make any promises. The Gift of the Magi is actually a pretty good representation of O. Henry's work, as it focuses on ordinary people and has a bit of a twist ending. Both of these themes are common in his writings, as is the setting of New York, and in fact, when he lived in New York, he would often people watch and make up backstories for the people that he would see, which would result in some of his stories. Now, as with many of the authors that we cover here on the show, there is more to go into before we get to the end of O. Henry's life. But unfortunately, again, as with several other authors, he lived longer before he started writing than he did after. He was a pretty heavy drinker, and his health deteriorated, starting around 1908, leading to his eventual death in 1910 of cirrhosis. As for today's stories, first we have The Cop and the Anthem, which was apparently published in December 1904, but I couldn't find anything about where it was actually published. 
It was included in the four million, which I mentioned a minute ago as containing the gift of the Magi, so not much of a background there, unfortunately. As for today's second tale, A Retrieved Reformation, it was published originally in April 1903 in the Cosmopolitan magazine, which you may know today simply as Cosmopolitan. Of course, the version of Cosmopolitan we know today is a little bit different than the one published in 1903. The Cosmopolitan magazine was first published in 1886 as a family magazine, which became then a literary magazine featuring work from authors like Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, George Bernard Shaw, and Jack London, who of course was featured in episode 3 of this year's show. It was in 1965 that Cosmopolitan became more of a women's magazine, which is how we know it today. Now there are a couple things I want to touch on before the stories here, as can tend to be the case in stories written over a century ago, there are some stereotypes at play here. The Irish cop and bartender, and probably more pointedly the subservient or inferior role of women. There's nothing necessarily degrading in the stories per se, there's a reference in one story to how a woman generally quote unquote worships her man, which is obviously demeaning and kind of stuck out to me, so I wanted to point out that I'm aware of it and that any views or beliefs presented in the stories are those of the author and not the narrator. And that will always be the case here on the program. I generally won't get into stories that are overly offensive here on the show, but I did want to just bring attention to that. Also, there are a couple of words here in the stories that may be unfamiliar to the audience, but nothing that can't be determined from the context in which they are used, and none that are central to the plot. I will say that in The Cop and the Anthem, the main character refers to Blackwell's and the island, which refers to Blackwell's Island, which is an island in the East River between Manhattan and Queens in New York City that is now known as Roosevelt Island. But at the time of the story's writing, it housed a kind of prison-slash-mental hospital. Now, we could get into the history of Roosevelt Island, but this intro is already running pretty long, and we've still got some stories to tell. So, those are the notes, that is the author, those are the stories, and this is today's presentation. Cop and the Anthem by O. Henry On his bench in Madison Square, Soapy moved uneasily. When wild geese honk high of nights, and when women without sealskin coats grow kind to their husbands, and when Soapy moves uneasily on his bench in the park, you may know that winter is near at hand. A dead leaf fell in Soapy's lap. That was Jack Frost's card. Jack is kind to the regular denizens of Madison Square, then gives fair warning of his annual call. At the corners of four streets, he hands his pasteboard to the north wind, footmen of the mansion of all outdoors, so that the inhabitants thereof may make ready. Soapy's mind became cognizant of the fact that the time had come for him to resolve himself into a singular committee of ways and means to provide against the coming rigor, and therefore he moved uneasily on his bench. The hibernatorial ambitions of Soapy were not of the highest. In them, there were no considerations of Mediterranean cruises, of soporific southern skies drifting in the Vesuvian Bay. Three months on the island was what his soul craved. Three months of assured board and bed, with congenial company, safe from Boreas and Bluecoats, seemed to Soapy the essence of things desirable. For years, the hospitable Blackwells had been his winter quarters. Just as his more fortunate fellow New Yorkers had bought their tickets to Palm Beach and the Riviera each winter, so Soapy had made his humble arrangements for his annual hijira to the island. And now the time was come. 
On the previous night, three Sabbath newspapers distributed beneath his coat, about his ankles, and over his lap had failed to repulse the cold as he slept on his bench near the spurring fountain in the ancient square. So the island loomed big and timely in Soapy's mind. He scorned the provisions made in the name of charity for the city's dependents. In Soapy's opinion, the law was more benign than philanthropy. There was an endless round of institutions, municipal and eleemosynary, on which he might set out and receive lodging and food accordant with the simple life. But to one of Soapy's proud spirit, the gifts of charity are encumbered. If not in coin, you must pay in humiliation of spirit for every benefit received at the hands of philanthropy. As Caesar had his Brutus, every bed of charity must have its toll of a bath, every loaf of bread its compensation of a private and personal inquisition. Wherefore, it is better to be a guest of the law, which, though conducted by rules, does not meddle unduly with a gentleman's private affairs. Soapy, having decided to go to the island, at once set about accomplishing his desire. There were many easy ways of doing this. The pleasantest was to dine luxuriously at some expensive restaurant, and then, after declaring insolvency, be handed over quietly and without uproar to a policeman. An accommodating magistrate would do the rest. Soapy left his bench and strolled out of the square and across the level sea of asphalt where Broadway and Fifth Avenue flowed together. Up Broadway he turned and halted at a glittering cafe, where are gathered together nightly the choicest products of the grape, the silkworm, and the protoplasm. Soapy had confidence in himself from the lowest button of his vest upward. He was shaven, and his coat was decent, and his neat black ready-tied foreign hand had been presented to him by a lady missionary on Thanksgiving Day. If he could reach a table in the restaurant, unsuspected success would be his. The portion of him that would show above the table would raise no doubt in the waiter's mind. A roasted mallard duck, thought Soapy, would be about the thing, with a bottle of Chablis and then Camembert, a demitasse and a cigar. One dollar for the cigar would be enough. The total would not be so high as to call forth any supreme manifestation of revenge from the cafe management, and yet the meat would leave him filled and happy for the journey to his winter refuge. But as Soapy set foot inside the restaurant door, the headwaiter's eye fell upon his frayed trousers and decadent shoes. Strong and ready hands turned him about and conveyed him in silence and haste to the sidewalk and averted the ignoble fate of the menaced mallard. Soapy turned off Broadway. It seemed that his route to the coveted island was not to be an Epicurean one. Some other way of entering limbo must be thought of. At a corner of 6th Avenue, electric lights and cunningly displayed wares behind plate glass made a shop window conspicuous. Soapy took a cobblestone and dashed it through the glass. People came running around the corner, a policeman in the lead. Soapy stood still, with his hands in his pockets, and smiled at the sight of brass buttons. "'Where's the man that done that?' inquired the officer excitedly. "'Don't you figure out that I might have had something to do with it?' said Soapy. Not without sarcasm, but friendly, as one greets good fortune. The policeman's mind refused to accept Soapy even as a clue. Men who smash windows do not remain to parley with the law's minions. They take to their heels. The policeman saw a man halfway down the block running to catch a car. With drawn club, he joined on, in the pursuit. Soapy, with disgust in his heart, loafed along, twice unsuccessful. On the opposite side of the street was a restaurant of no great pretensions. It catered to large appetites and modest purses. Its crockery and atmosphere were thick, its soup and napery thin. Into this place, Soapy took his accusive shoes and telltale trousers without challenge. At a table, he sat and consumed beefsteaks, flapjacks, donuts, and a pie. And then to the waiter, he betrayed the fact that the minutest coin and himself were strangers. Now get busy and call a cop, said Soapy, and don't keep a gentleman waiting. 
No cop for yous, said the waiter, with a voice like butter cakes and an eye like the cherry in a Manhattan cocktail. Hey, Khan! Neatly upon his left ear on the cow's pavement, two waiters pitched Soapy. He arose, joint by joint, as a carpenter's rule opens, and beat the dust from his clothes. A rest seemed but a rosy dream. The island seemed very far away. A policeman who stood before a drugstore two doors away laughed and walked down the street. Five blocks Soapy traveled before his courage permitted him to woo capture again. This time the opportunity presented what he fatuously termed to himself as a cinch. A young woman of modest and pleasing guise was standing before a show window gazing with sprightly interest at its display of shaving mugs and inkstands, and two yards from the window a large policeman of severe demeanor leaned against a water plug. It was Soapy's design to assume the role of the despicable and execrated masher. The refined and elegant appearance of his victim and the contiguity of the conscientious cop encouraged him to believe that he would soon feel the pleasant official clutch upon his arm that would ensure his winter quarters on the right little tight little aisle. Soapy straightened the lady missionary's ready-made tie, dragged his shrinking cuffs into the open, set his hat at a killing cant, and sidled toward the young women. He made eyes at her was taken with sudden coughs and hems, <laughs> smiled, smirked, and went brazenly through the impudent and contemptible litany of the masher. With half an eye, Soapy saw that the policeman was watching him fixedly. The young woman moved away a few steps and again bestowed her absorbed attention upon the shaving mugs. Soapy followed, boldly stepping to her side, raised his hat and said, Ah oh, there, Bedelia, don't you want to come play in my yard? The policeman was still looking. The persecuted young woman had to but beckon a finger, and Soapy would be practically en route for his insular haven. Already he imagined he could feel the cozy warmth of the station house. The young woman faced him, and stretching out a hand, caught Soapy's coat sleeve. Sure, Mike, she said joyfully. If you'll blow me to a pail of suds, I'd have spoke to you sooner, but the cop was watching. With the young woman playing the clinging ivy to his oak, Soapy walked past the policeman, overcome with gloom. He seemed doomed to liberty. At the next corner, he shook off his companion and ran. He halted in the district where by night are found the lightest streets, hearts, vows, and librettos. Women in furs and men in greatcoats moved gaily in the wintry air. A sudden fear seized Soapy that some dreadful enchantment had rendered him immune to arrest. The thought brought a little of panic upon it, and when he came upon another policeman lounging grandly in front of a transplendent theater, he caught at the immediate straw of disorderly conduct. On the sidewalk, Soapy began to yell drunken gibberish at the top of his harsh voice. He danced, howled, raved, and otherwise disturbed the welkin. The policeman twirled his club, turned his back to Soapy, and remarked to a citizen, "'Tis one of them Yale lads celebrating the goose egg they gave to Hartford College. Noisy, but no harm. We've instructions to lave them be." Disconsolate, Soapy ceased his unavailing racket. Would never a policeman lay hands on him? In his fancy, the island seemed an unattainable Arcadia. He buttoned his thin coat against the chilling wind. In a cigar store, he saw a well-dressed man lighting a cigar at a swinging light. His silk umbrella he had set by the door on entering. Soapy stepped inside, secured the umbrella, and sauntered off with it slowly. The man at the cigar light followed hastily. My umbrella, he said sternly. Oh, is it? sneered Soapy, adding insult to petted larceny. Well, why don't you call a policeman? I took it, your umbrella. Why don't you call a cop? There stands one on the corner. The umbrella owner slowed his steps. Soapy did likewise, with a presentiment that luck would again run against him. The policeman looked at the two curiously. Of course, 
said the Umbrella Man. Uh, that is, uh, well, you know how these mistakes occur. I, uh, If it's your umbrella, I hope you'll excuse me. I, I picked it up this morning in a restaurant. Uh, if you recognize it as yours, why, I hope you'll... Of course it's mine, said Soapy viciously. The ex-umbrella man retreated. The policeman hurried to assist a tall blonde in an opera cloak across the street in front of a streetcar that was approaching two blocks away. Soapy walked eastward through a street damaged by improvements. He hurled the umbrella wrathfully into an excavation. He muttered against the men who wear helmets and carry clubs. Because he wanted to fall into their clutches, they seemed to regard him as a king who could do no wrong. At length, Soapy reached one of the avenues to the east where the glitter and turmoil was but faint. He set his face down this toward Madison Square, for the homing instinct survives even when the home is a park bench. But on an unusually quiet corner, Soapy came to a standstill. Here was an old church, quaint and rambling and gabled. Through one violet-stained window a soft light glowed, where, no doubt, the organist loitered over the keys, making sure of his mastery of the coming Sabbath anthem. For there drifted out to Soapy's ears sweet music that caught and held him transfixed against the convolutions of the iron fence. The moon was above, lustrous and serene. Vehicles and pedestrians were few. Sparrows twittered sleepily in the eaves. For a little while the scene might have been a country churchyard and the anthem that the organist played cemented Soapy to the iron fence, for he had known it well in the days when his life contained such thing as mothers and roses and ambitions and friends and immaculate thoughts and collars. The conjunction of Soapy's receptive state of mind and the influences about the old church wrought a sudden and wonderful change in his soul. He viewed with swift horror the pit into which he had tumbled, the degraded days, unworthy desires, wrecked faculties and base motives that made up his existence. And also, in a moment, his heart responded thrillingly to this novel mood. An instantaneous and strong impulse moved him to battle with his desperate fate. He would pull himself out of the mire. He would make a man of himself again. He would conquer the evil that had taken possession of him. There was time. He was comparatively young yet. He would resurrect his old eager ambitions and pursue them without faltering. Those solemn but sweet organ notes had set up a revolution in him. Tomorrow, he would go into the roaring downtown district and find work. A fur importer had once offered him a place as a driver. He would find him tomorrow and ask for the position. He would be somebody in the world. He would... Soapy felt a hand laid on his arm. He looked quickly around into the broad face of a policeman. What are you doing here? Asked the officer. Nothing, said Soapy. Then come along, said the policeman. Three months on the island, said the magistrate in the police court the next morning. A Retrieved Reformation by O. Henry A guard came to the prison shoe shop where Jimmy Valentine was assiduously stitching uppers and escorted him to the front office. There the warden handed Jimmy his pardon, which had been signed that morning by the governor. Jimmy took it in a tired kind of way. He had served nearly ten months of a four-year sentence. He had expected to stay only about three months at the longest. When a man with as many friends on the outside as Jimmy Valentine had is received in the stir, 
it is hardly worthwhile to cut his hair. Now, Valentine, said the warden, you'll go out in the morning, brace up and make a man of yourself. You're not a bad fellow at heart. Stop cracking safes and live straight. Me? said Jimmy in surprise. Why, I never cracked a safe in my life. Oh, no, laughed the warden. Of course not. Let's see now, how was it you happened to get sent up on that Springfield job? Was it because you wouldn't prove an alibi for fear of compromising somebody in extremely high-toned society? Or was it simply a case of a mean old jury that had it in for you? It's always one or the other with you innocent victims. Me? said Jimmy, still blankly virtuous. Why, warden, I was never in Springfield in my life. Take him back, Cronin, said the warden, and fix him up without going close. Unlock him at seven in the morning and let him come to the bullpen. Better think over my advice, Valentine. At a quarter past seven on the next morning, Jimmy stood at the warden's outer office. He had on a suit of the villainously fitting ready-made clothes and a pair of the stiff squeaky shoes that the state furnishes to its discharged compulsory guests. The clerk handed him a railroad ticket and the $5 bill with which the law expected him to rehabilitate himself into good citizenship and prosperity. The warden gave him a cigar and shook hands. Valentine, 9672, was chronicled on the books, Pardoned by Governor, and Mr. James Valentine walked out into the sunshine. Disregarding the song of the birds, the waving green trees, and the smell of the flowers, Jimmy headed straight for a restaurant. There he tasted the first sweet joys of liberty in the shape of a broiled chicken and a bottle of white wine, followed by a cigar a grade better than the one the warden had given him. From there he proceeded leisurely to the depot. He tossed a quarter into the hat of a blind man sitting by the door and boarded his train. Three hours set him down in a little town near the state line. He went to the cafe of one Mike Dolan and shook hands with Mike, who was alone behind the bar. Sorry we couldn't make it sooner, Jimmy, my boy, said Mike. But we had that protest from Springfield to buck against, and the governor nearly balked. Feeling all right? Fine, said Jimmy. Got my key? He got his key and went upstairs, unlocking the door of a room at the rear. Everything was just as he had left it. There on the floor was still Ben Price's collar button that had been torn from that eminent detective's shirt band when they had overpowered Jimmy to arrest him. Pulling out from the wall a folding bed, Jimmy slid back a panel on the wall and dragged out a dust-covered suitcase. He opened this and gazed fondly at the finest set of burglar's tool in the East. It was a complete set, made of specially tempered steel, the latest designs in drills, punches, braces, and bits, jimmies, clamps, and augers, with two or three novelties invented by Jimmy himself, in which he took pride. Over $900 they had cost him to have made it and the place where they make such things for the profession. In half an hour, Jimmy went downstairs and through the cafe. He was now dressed in tasteful and well-fitting clothes, and carried his dusted and cleaned suitcase in his hand. "'Got anything on?' asked Mike Dolan genially. "'Me?' said Jimmy in a puzzled tone. "'I don't understand. I'm representing the New York Amalgamated Short Snap Biscuit Cracker and Frazzled Wheat Company.' The statement delighted Mike to such an extent that Jimmy had to take a seltzer and milk on the spot. He never touched hard drinks. A week after the release of Valentine 9762, there was a neat job of safe burglary done in Richmond, Indiana with no clue to the author. A scant $800 was all that was secured. Two weeks after that, a patented, improved, burglar-proof safe in Logansport was opened like a cheese, to the tune of $1,500 currency, securities and silver untouched. That began to interest the rogue catchers. 
Then an old-fashioned bank safe in Jefferson City became active and threw out of its crater an eruption of banknotes amounting to $5,000. The losses were now high enough to bring the matter up to Ben Price's class of work. By comparing notes, a remarkable similarity in the methods of the burglaries was noticed. Ben Price investigated the scenes of the robberies and was heard to remark, That's Jandy Dim Valentine's autograph. He's resumed business. Look at that combination knob, jerked out as easy as pulling up a radish in wet weather. He's got the only clamps that could do it. And look how clean those tumblers were punched out. Jimmy never has to drill but one hole. Yes, I guess I want Mr. Valentine. He'll do his bit next time without any short time or clemency foolishness. Ben Price knew Jimmy's habits. He had learned them while working the Springfield case. Long jumps, quick getaways, no confederates, and a taste for good society. These ways had helped Mr. Valentine to become noted as a successful dodger of retribution. It was given out that Ben Price had taken up the trail of the elusive cracksman, and other people with burglar-proof safes felt more at ease. One afternoon, Jimmy Valentine and his suitcase climbed out of the mail hack in Elmore, a little town five miles off the railroad down in Blackjack County of Arkansas. Jimmy, looking like an athletic young senior just home from college, went down the board sidewalk toward the hotel. A young lady crossed the street, passed him at the corner, and entered a door over which was the sign, The Elmore Bank. Jimmy Valentine looked into her eyes, forgot where he was, and became another man. She lowered her eyes and colored slightly. Young men of Jimmy's style and looks were scarce in Elmore. Jimmy collared a boy that was loafing on the steps of the bank as if he were one of the stockholders and began to ask him questions about the town, feeding him dimes at intervals. By and by, the young lady came out looking royally unconscious of the young man with a suitcase and went her way. Isn't that young lady Polly Simpson? asked Jimmy with specious guile. No, said the boy. She's Annabelle Adams. Her pa owns the bank. Why'd you come to Elmore for? Is that a gold watch chain? I'm gonna get a bulldog. Got any more dimes? Jimmy went to Planter's Hotel, registered as Ralph D. Spencer, and engaged a room. He leaned on the desk and declared his platform to the clerk. He said he had come to Elmore to look for a location to go into business. How was the shoe business now in the town? He had thought of the shoe business. Was there an opening? The clerk was impressed by the clothes and manner of Jimmy. He himself was something of a pattern of fashion to the thinly gilded youth of Elmore, but he now perceived his shortcomings. While trying to figure out Jimmy's manner of tying his foreign hand, he cordially gave the information. Yes, there ought to be a good opening in the shoe line. There wasn't an exclusive shoe store in the place. The dry goods and general stores handled them. Business in all lines was fairly good. Hoped Mr. Spencer would decide to locate an Elmore. He would find it a pleasant town to live in and the people very sociable. Mr. Spencer thought he would stop over in the town a few days and look over the situation. No, the clerk needn't call the boy. He would carry up his suitcase himself. It was rather heavy. Mr. Ralph Spencer, the phoenix that arose from Jimmy Valentine's ashes, ashes left by the flame of a sudden and alterative attack of love, remained in Elmore and prospered. He opened a shoe store and secured a good run of trade. Socially, he was also a success and made many friends. And he accomplished the wish of his heart. He met Miss Annabelle Adams and became more and more captivated by her charms. At the end of a year, the situation of Mr. Ralph Spencer was this. He had won the respect of the community, his shoe store was flourishing, and he and Annabelle were engaged to be married in two weeks. Mr. Adams, the typical plodding country banker, approved of Spencer. Annabelle's pride in him almost equaled her affection. He was as much at home in the family of Mr. Adams and that of Annabelle's married sister as if he were already a member.
One day, Jimmy sat down in his room and wrote this letter, which he mailed to the safe address of one of his old friends in St. Louis. Dear old pal, I want you to be at Sullivan's place in Little Rock next Wednesday night at 9 o'clock. I want you to wind up some little matters for me. And also, I want to make you a present of my kit tools. I know you'll be glad to get them. You couldn't duplicate the lot for a thousand dollars. Say, Billy, I've quit the old business a year ago. I've got a nice store. I'm making an honest living. And I'm going to marry the finest girl on earth two weeks from now. It's the only life, Billy. The straight one. I wouldn't touch a dollar of another man's money now for a million. After I get married, I'm going to sell out and go west, where there won't be so much danger of having old scores brought up against me. I tell you, Billy, she's an angel. She believes in me, and I wouldn't do another crooked thing for the whole world. Be sure to be at Sully's, for I must see you. I'll bring along the tools with me. Your old friend, Jimmy. On the Monday night after Jimmy wrote this letter, Ben Price jogged unobtrusively into Elmore in a livery buggy. He lounged about town in his quiet way until he found out what he wanted to know. From the drugstore across the street from Spencer's shoe store, he got a good look at Ralph D. Spencer. Going to marry the banker's daughter, are you, Jimmy? Said Ben to himself softly. Well, I don't know. The next morning, Jimmy took breakfast at the Adamses. He was going to Little Rock that day to order his wedding suit and buy something nice for Annabelle. That would be the first time he had left town since he came to Elmore. It had been more than a year now since those last professional jobs, and he thought he could safely venture out. After breakfast, quite a family party went downtown together. Mr. Adams, Annabelle, Jimmy, and Annabelle's married sister with her two little girls, aged five and nine. They came by the hotel where Jimmy still boarded, and he ran up to his room and brought along his suitcase. Then they went on to the bank. There stood Jimmy's horse and buggy and Dolph Gibson, who was going to drive him over to the railroad station. All went inside the high carved oak railings into the banking room. Jimmy included, for Mr. Adams's future son-in-law, was welcome anywhere. The clerks were pleased to be greeted by the good-looking, agreeable young man who was going to marry Miss Annabelle. Jimmy set his suitcase down. Annabelle, whose heart was bubbling with happiness and lively youth, put on Jimmy's hat and picked up the suitcase. Oh, wouldn't I make a nice drummer? said Annabelle. My, Ralph, how heavy it is. Feels like it was full of gold bricks. A lot of nickel-plated shoehorns in there, said Jimmy coolly. That I'm going to return. Thought I'd save extra express charges by taking them up. I'm getting awfully economical. The Elmore Bank had just put in a new safe and vault. Mr. Adams was very proud of it and insisted on an inspection by everyone. The vault was a small one, but it had a new patented door. It fastened with three solid steel bolts thrown simultaneously with a single handle and had a time lock. Mr. Adams beamingly explained its workings to Mr. Spencer, who showed a courteous but not too intelligent interest. The two children, May and Agatha, were delighted by the shining metal and funny clock and knobs. While they were thus engaged, Ben Price sauntered in and leaned on his elbow, looking casually inside between the railings. He told the teller that he didn't want anything, he was just waiting for a man he knew. Suddenly there was a scream or two from the women, and a commotion. Unperceived by the elders, May, the nine-year-old girl, in a spirit of play, had shut Agatha in the vault. She had then shot the bolts and turned the knob of the combination as she had seen Mr. Adams do. The old banker sprang to the handle and tugged at it for a moment. "'The door can't be opened,' he groaned. "'The clock hasn't been wound, nor the combination set.' Agatha's mother screamed again hysterically. "'Hush!' said Mr. Adams." raising his trembling hand. Oh, be quiet for a moment. Agatha, he called as loudly as he could. Listen to me. During the following silence, they could just hear the faint sound of the child wildly shrieking in the dark vault 
in a panic of terror. My precious darling, wailed the mother. She will die of fright. Open the door. Oh, break it open. Can't you men do something? There isn't a man narrower than Little Rock who can open that door, said Mr. Adams in a shaky voice. Spencer, what shall we do? That child, she can't stand it long in there. There isn't enough air, and besides, she'll go into convulsions from fright. Agatha's mother, frantic now, beat the door of the vault with her hands. Somebody wildly suggested dynamite. Annabelle turned to Jimmy, her large eyes full of anguish, but not yet despairing. To a woman, nothing seems quite impossible to the powers of the man she worships. Can't you do something, Ralph? Try, won't you? He looked at her with a queer, soft smile on his lips and in his keen eyes. Annabelle, he said, give me that rose you're wearing, will you? Hardly believing that she heard him right, she unpinned the bud from the bosom of her dress and placed it in his hand. Jimmy stuffed it into his vest pocket, threw off his coat, and pulled up his shirt sleeves. With that act, Ralph D. Spencer passed away, and Jimmy Valentine took his place. Get away from that door, all of you, he commanded shortly. He set his suitcase on the table and opened it out flat. From that time on, he seemed to be unconscious of the presence of anyone else. He laid out the shining, queer implements swiftly and orderly, whistling softly to himself as he always did when at work. In a deep silence and immovable, the others watched him as if under a spell. In a minute, Jimmy's pet drill was biting smoothly into the steel door. In ten minutes, breaking his own burglarious record, he threw back the bolts and opened the door. Agatha almost collapsed, but safe, was gathered into her mother's arms. Jimmy Valentine put on his coat and walked outside the railings toward the front door. As he went, he thought he heard a faraway voice that he once knew call, Ralph, but he never hesitated. At the door, a big man stood somewhat in his way. Hello, Ben, said Jimmy, still with his strange smile. Got around at last, have you? Well, let's go. I don't know that it makes much difference now. And then Ben Price acted rather strangely. Guess you're mistaken, Mr. Spencer, he said. Don't believe I recognize you. Your buggy's waiting for you, ain't it? Well, the moral of today's stories seems to be that crime doesn't pay. But the skills you learn as a criminal? Well, those might be a different story. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. And if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word. If you got a story to submit to the show or if you have a request for a short story, send that in to syypodcast at gmail.com or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now next week might be the folklore podcast that I teased last week. But then again, it might not be. And if it's not... You're going to hear about a man who encounters what he thinks is a deserted landscape. But as we know, things aren't always as they seem. Until then, this has been episode 19 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.